Alright, hello and welcome to another unexciting episode of Hashtag Pistons. Um, I'm Joe, I'm your host. It's been a little while. Um, you know, I'm gonna stop just... I'm not gonna make excuses for it anymore. Um, you know, just stuff happens. Uh, I do, however, have a fancy new mic, so hopefully the, uh, the sound quality has improved a little bit. Um, that was one thing that I've been waiting on, but, um, regardless, we're here. Um, a lot of stuff has happened since... <clears throat> since we we last talked, and um, primarily among them is the the firing of Stan Van Gundy, um, or more properly the parting of ways for Van Gundy and the Pistons. Um, and I've said this several different places, so I won't get you know I won't get too into it. But basically, yes, I would have preferred to keep Van Gundy um, primarily because of the fact that. I just first off, I feel like he he did more good than bad. He did good, he basically there was enough in his resume with the Pistons that suggested to me that he had done a good-ish job. And then on top of that, I'm not sure what other options are out there that are going to be significantly better. And if you're going to move on from Van Gundy because he did bring a certain amount of stability and um, just sort of organizational competence to the Pistons. Um, so if you're going to move on from him, I think that you, you have to bring forward a, someone, you have to bring in somebody who's going to be an improvement over him, right? You don't want to, you don't want to go backwards from someone who, even though in his four years, they hadn't gotten the job done. That's just the reality. They had not won enough games. That's one of the reasons why I'm not exactly, I'm not up in arms over the firing of Stan Van Gundy, um, I'm not, you know, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not super, super wound up about it, but just now he did bring something to the table, and even if he didn't get you where you wanted to go, and so now looking forward, you have to, you have to make sure that you are going to be improving your organization and improving your franchise, and that's something that I'm a little bit worried about because, particularly this particular off season. I'm not sure what options are out there that are going to be significantly better than Stan Van Gundy was. And Mike Budenholzer would have been um, my favorite option, but obviously the Bucks, the Bucks hired him, which is which is too bad. I don't know how much interest he would have had in the Pistons in the first place, but that was that's really the only guy that I looked at and figured he would really be a good option for the Pistons. I think very highly of Budenholzer and um, and his abilities as a coach. The The other big name that a lot of people have put out there is Dwayne Casey. Um, the Pistons could do worse than Casey, but I really, I would be very hesitant to bring him on to this team. Um, and it's, it's sort of twofold. So first off, once again, the Pistons could do you could do a lot worse than Dwayne Casey. There's a certain amount of just, you know what he's going to bring to the table. And so as much as you can with any head coach, at least, you know for a fact that, first off, the players are going to more or less like him and respect him. Um, everywhere he's gone, teams have really, have the play, players that he's coached have really thought highly of him. Um, anybody who interacts with him talks about what a great guy he is and how much everybody likes him. Um, he's really a high quality, just human being, 
and so you know first off the players are going to like him um they're going to respect him you also know that there's going to be a uh, a certain amount of just cohesion in the way that the team is going to play he's going to be able to get everybody more or less on the same page and thirdly they're going to play hard pretty much every night and you know those are all good things and that's the reason why the reality is that you could do worse than Dwayne Casey but he scares me because he's never been a creative offensive coach and and or defensive coach quite frankly he's a lot of the things that people complained and often rightfully so complained about Stan Van Gundy are true of Dwayne Casey except even more so um, Dwayne Casey very set in his ways. When he decides that you know he's got a way of doing something, he's very hesitant to change it up. Um, he finds a rotation he likes and he sticks with it. He's not very good at um, thinking on the fly and making changes on the fly. At least he hasn't been. And it's just those are all things that worry me because when I look at the Pistons roster, and once again, this is assuming that no that no radical changes are made to the roster, which it's there's a possibility that there could be, but obviously we can't we can't know what those are. So we if we assume that more or less the Pistons go into the next season with the same roster that they have now. Um there is enough talent on the roster that they could be a really good offensive team. But there's also the build of them means that there's potential for them to be a quite ugly offensive team. And my biggest fear is that whoever they hire as the next coach is too willing to let um, some of their players, who are good offensive players and can be very useful in the offense, um, sort of indulge in some of their some of their worst habits. So um, whether that's Andre Drummond posting up a lot more, Blake Griffin playing too much iso ball and not moving off the ball enough, maybe taking too many more jump shots than he should or Reggie Jackson playing hero ball too often and not sharing the ball enough. Um, those are all things in, you know, Luke Kennard and Reggie Bullock running into too many long twos instead of pulling for three-pointers. Um, those are all things that worry me, and those are things that I think would be not unlikely to happen if Dwayne Casey was the head coach. Um, they sort of revamped their offense this past year uh, at the behest of GM Masai Ujiri, but I think that's how you pronounce it. If I pronounce it wrong, I, I apologize. But And supposedly Nick Nurse, an assistant coach for the Raptors, had a lot to do with that. Um, but before that, the Raptors were easily the most uncreative offensive team in the NBA. Uh, they were consistently last or close to it in passes per game, assists per game. It was just basically just DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry. You guys are going to play isolation constantly. And we're going to not turn the ball over very often. We're not going to be all that, you know, we're not going to be anything special. That's just what we're going to do. And there is some there is some value to that. And I think that there's potential where if you did that, if you applied that sort of an offensive strategy to the Pistons correctly, um, you could make it work. Because in a, in a basic sense, Blake Griffin is a very good isolation player. So is Reggie Jackson. And um, as long as you keep... Um, Andre Drummond from playing through post-ups too much, he can be a real weapon in that sort of an offense. I mean, a couple of years ago, well, I guess three years ago now, um, the Pistons' offense was Reggie Jackson and Andre Drummond running pick-and-rolls a billion times every game. 
And that's a really effective way to use Andre Drummond. He's awesome in those situations. So, you know, there is a world in which you could make that work and that Dwayne Casey would maybe make it work. But I just, I'll be worried that he would just, he's just so much of a player's coach and so much of a kind of, we're just going to roll roll the ball out in on offense. We're going to play hard on defense. And that's how we're going to win that there'd be too many Andre Drummond jump hooks and stuff like that, that I just, I'd be hesitant about it. Um, but once again, you could do worse than him. You know that with Casey, there would be a certain just sort of basic competence in the way that he runs the team, which would be nice because that, that was one of Stan Van Gundy's strong points, and you know that you wouldn't go backwards from that. Um, I'd just be more interested in a in a, in a head coach who's going to be able to take the sort of institutional competence that Stan Van Gundy brought and the sort of culture competence that Stan Van Gundy brought and sort of build on that by taking that and sort of saying, okay, these things are good. This is what Stan Van Gundy did well. He built something that can be built upon from here. He put a good foundation down with um, a roster with a pretty good amount of talent and guys who now know hard work is required. You know, being a professional every day is not an option. It's a requirement to play here. And, you know, he sort of brought that brought that to the table. And um, then then somebody who would be able to take that and be more innovative on the floor. That's something that I think would be of... That's what the best option would be. But here's the reality is that you're probably not pulling Brad Stevens out of anywhere, right? You're probably not going to find the best coach in the NBA. Sometimes you have to make sacrifices and say, well, we're not going to get a perfect coach. So we may have to pick, well, this is what we're going to have to value above other things. And, you know, so just like Stan Van Gundy was not a perfect coach, you're probably not getting a perfect coach. So it may well end up being that Dwayne Casey is the best option. I just don't know how much of an improvement he would be over Stan Van Gundy. A lot of the things that frustrated people about Stan Van Gundy are going to be the same things, except even more so with Dwayne Casey. So it just, I'd be hesitant with him. Um, beyond him, it's its kind of hard to say. And this is also true of... Um, this is also true of the front office availabilities. Here's a motorcycle that's like that was sitting outside my <laughs> my window. Sorry if that was coming through, but um, it's sort of the same thing with both uh, front office positions and head coach. If you're looking at people who have been assistant coaches for most of their careers. Um, and so for assistant coaches, that includes a guy like um, Messina or Becky Hammond or Nick Nurse or, um, you know, any number of guys who are, who've been primarily assistant coaches in their careers. And then the same thing with guys who've been front office people that don't have um, experience as the GM because basically the result is unless you were there working with them, it's very hard to know for us as more or less outsiders, even people who are somewhat insiders and are connected to an organization somehow, even for them, it can be difficult to judge um, just exactly how much impact they're having on a team or organization. So, you know, so Shane Batty is a guy who's, it, it's been, it was reported that he's going to get a second interview. Um, he's been the Heat, the Miami Heat's I think he's been the head of their analytics department, I think. 
Um, I probably should have double checked that too late now. But he's been he's been working in the Miami Heat front office for at least a couple of years now, so he does have some experience. And um, you know, the reality is that it's very difficult for me to say a whole lot about whether I like that or not. Um, I would say that it would be nice. I know that the Miami Heat are very forward thinking with their analytics department and such. Um, they're pretty, they're one of the better franchises in that respect. And also they're pretty well known as being a well-run and very professional franchise as well. So I wouldn't mind having a guy from the Miami Heat come in. And I also wouldn't mind having an analytics guy come in. So in those, in with that in mind, Shane Battier, I certainly wouldn't mind that. But once again, who knows, maybe at, in the Heat's front office, he's the guy who's telling them, well, you know, three-pointers aren't really that important. And everyone else is like, yeah, Shane, whatever. I, mean, <laughs> I don't think that he would be. He spent a lot of time playing for the Rockets, and he was sort of the consummate professional, consummate guy who's just making the right basketball plays. But it's just, it's hard to say. So, And it's the same thing with assistant coaches, even with a guy like Jerry Stackhouse, who's had a lot of success as the head coach of the Raptors G League team, Raptors 905, over the past couple of years. They've been very, very good, and in a lot of good ways. But it's hard to know if that would translate to success at the NBA level. So it's just, I'm going to mostly pass on all of those. Um, whoever they end up hiring, uh, if it is someone who's an assistant coach or who or someone who's not been a, G, a general manager before, so for the front office job, they'll basically be anybody other than um, David Griffin, who has some front office experience, which I'd be, I'm not sure how I'd feel about about Griffin with the Pistons. He did it, he made some good moves, he made some not so good moves, but it's also, it's kind of hard to, it's a little bit hard to judge with that because of the reality that he had LeBron on his team and that sort of just changes everything really so um regardless we'll see what happens when they hire someone i'll dig a little deeper i'll try and um talk to some people and try and get a good feel for um what they what they bring to the table and then we'll talk about that then but for now we'll just have to see um i hope that as a coach i hope that they get somebody who is at the very least not a bum offensively because, as I said earlier, um, I'd be worried about a coach who's too willing to let some of their the Pistons players indulge in their worst offensive habits. Because that could make this a very bad and hard-to-watch offensive team. When, with the right coach, I think this could be an elite offensive team when they're healthy. So, And as far as the front office goes, I'd like someone with experience, just because you'd prefer that. I, that means I would not be a big fan of Chauncey Billups, for instance. Um, just because he doesn't have any experience as a as a GM, but the the simple reality is that it's hard to say exactly. So um, I'll I'll roll with whoever they get, and we'll see what they do there. Um, as for what they'll have to do, though, that's really the more interesting question to me, and something where I can perhaps provide a bit more expertise. So the biggest questions for the front office, in no particular order, to me, first off. You have they have to decide if Reggie Jackson is going to be their guy going forward or not. Um, I think very highly of Reggie Jackson. I've never pretended anything else. Anyone who's followed me, listened to me, look, read what I have to say, knows that I think very highly of Reggie Jackson. But 
Um, the reality is that the past two seasons have been derailed by him getting hurt. And then obviously two years ago when he came back from being hurt, he played like absolute garbage. And it's a tough situation because you know that you can succeed with Reggie Jackson as the point guard when he's healthy. But you're first off, you're worried about him not staying healthy. And he's not quite good enough when he is healthy that you just say, whatever, we're going to take that risk. Because um, he's a very good point guard, but he's not like one of these guys who's a super high-level, super elite point guard. The one thing that I will be interested to see this next season, whether Jackson is with the Pistons or not, is how he looks athletically and in terms of explosion. Because this past year, even though he looked better in a lot of ways... Um, he did not have that back from where he was when he first got with the Pistons in that first full season where he scored almost 19 points and 7 assists per game. Um, he wasn't quite at 7 assists. I think he was at like 6.3, but that's not totally relevant. Um, the simple fact is that he didn't have that same explosion, and it could perhaps be forgiven because of the fact that Supposedly, last summer, he spent basically the entire summer rehabbing his knee. That's basically all he did, allegedly. Um, he didn't do a whole lot of playing basketball. He didn't do a whole lot of you know specific working out. Everything was more or less focused on... And obviously, he did a lot of those things. But compared to what normally NBA players do in the offseason, Reggie Jackson spent a huge amount of time focused on making sure that his knees were right for this past season and so I'd be intrigued to see what he do obviously he got hurt last year but he should be more or less ready to go he did play down the stretch of the season so I'd be intrigued to see what he'll look like after a proper off season um if he could because if he could come back and he has the same sort of explosion and abilities that he had a couple of years ago then there's no reason for the Pistons to trade him. But if he is the sort of player that he was this past season, which is a very good point guard, one you can win with, but there's the potential that you could upgrade it. And beyond that is that if he gets hurt, you know, he's not he's maybe not worth the 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 risk of the fact that he might get hurt again. Even though last year was a freak injury. He 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 twisted his ankle really badly. He came down wrong. That's something that can happen any to anybody but it's still a worry so I think that's a big question that the new regime is going to have to decide because what you can't have happen is roll with Jackson into the season and then whether it's because he gets hurt or because you just decide he's not good enough have to make a panic trade part way through the year um, the only way where that would maybe work out would be if Jackson plays pretty well and some other team is ready, starts to panic, and is really desperately trying to get rid of their starting point guard. So whether, so maybe Charlotte with Kemba Walker, the Hawks with Dennis Schroeder, um, maybe the Celtics decide they have to get rid of Terry Rozier. Uh, you know, the list could go on and on of guys who could potentially move, and we don't know how next season will go and what moves will be made before then. But I think that you want to make that decision sooner rather than later. And I personally would be very okay with them rolling with Reggie Jackson heading into next year, but that's a big question that they have to answer. Um, the second question that they'd have to answer is, do you believe in Henry Ellenson as a rotation NBA player? Because one of the things hanging over them is, um, 
the potential for can you bring back Anthony Tolliver, which I doubt they'll be able to for what it's worth. Um, because if Anthony Tolliver does not return, power forward could become a big hole for the Pistons. And the, um, let's see, I gotta bring up these numbers a second. Because, first off, now, starting power forward, obviously, Blake Griffin has that on lockdown. But the, the thing that you have to know is, even at his best, you have to assume that Blake Griffin is gonna miss somewhere between 10 and 20 games this next season. Um... And that's something that should be concerning because right now, so let's assume that they don't bring back Anthony Tolliver. He gets a decent offer somewhere in the Pistons, just they can't pay him that much. If he does that, if that happens, then Blake Griffin gets hurt. Guess who your starting power forward is for a while? Henry Ellenson. And maybe you can put John Luer in there. We'll talk about Luer. I don't know if we'll get to him in this podcast. We may have to talk about Luer another time. But... Um, and also beyond that is that Ellenson would be a rotation player, and there would not be a main guy behind him to play power forward unless they draft someone or sign someone with a minimum, at the vet minimum. But basically that's an important decision because if you think Henry Ellen, if they believe Henry Ellenson is a proper rotation player who you they feel comfortable, we're going to let him play, he's a backup power forward, he can start in a pinch if we need him to, and he'll be fine. Then power forward is not a position of need because you've got Blake Griffin obviously starting, Henry Ellenson as a backup, um, and obviously John Luer can play some minutes at power forward, and then you can sign, you know, whatever, some big off-the-scrap heap somewhere, whether that's someone out of the G League, some vet, some veteran at the minimum, or maybe you use your second-round pick on him, and then you've got a fourth guy who can fill in when needed. And... In which case, it wouldn't be a worry. But if you don't think Henry Ellenson can be um, a rotation player, then you have a problem, and you have to. You've got that's a hole that has to be filled. And just for people who are going, who on earth would think that Henry Ellenson could be worth a rotation place? Um, worth mentioning over the last eight games of this past season, where he got once Blake Griffin got hurt and he got into the regular rotation. Alright, so this is an 18.5 minutes per game. This is, it's not a, it's not a large sample size. It's 8 games, 18.5 minutes per game, right? Not a large sample size. But, for what it's worth, he's played so little that this is his lar- the largest sample size of games, of actual game time in his career. Alright, 18.5 minutes per game. Scored 9.8 points, 4.1 rebounds, 1 assist, shot 42.4% from the field, and 40% from three. That's not bad. <laughs> That's not bad at all. He struggles defensively still, um, but he does rebound the ball. He's very large, and that has some value defensively, and he really has a good offensive skill set. So, And also, for what it's worth, in all but three of those games, they were positive with him on the floor. Um, that's not worth a lot, but it's something. So basically, just the point is, it's not totally unrealistic to think we're going to roll with Henry Ellenson. Just that's a decision that they have to make. Um, I'll have to think about that more, and I'll give my thoughts on that at some point else, I'm sure. But this is basically just, that's a decision they have to make. Because if they think, if they believe in Henry Ellenson as a rotation piece this next year, 
then they should be all set at power forward. It's not a spot of need. It's not a position of need. They're all good to go there. If Henry Ellenson is not a rotation piece, then they need to get a new backup power forward, whether that's um, finding a way to bring back Anthony Tolliver, whether that's finding one in the draft, whether that's, you know, somehow or another, you have to find a, a backup power forward. Um, another big question, I think this may actually be the biggest question for them, is um, is Reggie Bullock a small forward or a shooting guard long term? Now, obviously, you can play three guard lineups where Kennard and Bullock would be on the floor together. Um, the Pistons did that last year at, at times, but the question would basically be, can you start Reggie Bullock at the three and Luke Kennard at the two and have that be Bullock's near full-time position? Um, offensively, that would almost certainly be the preferred option for the Pistons um, over starting Stanley Johnson, barring a big improvement from him this offseason. Um, you would be able to have, it would just, it would, that would be, that's the Pistons' best option offensively. There's just, there's no question. With Reggie Jackson at point guard, Kennard at shooting guard, Bullock at small forward, Griffin at the four, Andre Drummond at the center. Um, that's the potential to be an elite offensive unit. Uh, the question is, would they be able to defend anybody at all? And <laughs> I'm not sure if they would be able to defend much, but that's a question that they have to decide, is can Reggie Bullock survive at the three long-term defensively? Um, once again, obviously, that's a lineup, at least with Bullock and Kennard on the floor together. That's something that they'll do occasionally, or at least they should. Um but is that something that they can soak up some of the minutes there, or is that something that they that's going to be their a regular heavy minutes lineup for them? And if it is, then small forward, much like with the Henry Allen's thing. If they believe that Reggie Bullock can be a small forward full-time, basically, then small forward is not really a position of need unless they decide to move Stanley Johnson because you've got Bullock at starter, Stanley Johnson coming off the bench, and then you know you can sort of roll with whatever, you, whether it's someone you draft or someone you pull off the bargain bin to be the third guy who fills in when there's injuries or whatever. Um, regardless, you, you're fine there. If you don't believe in Reggie Bullock as a full-time small forward, then small forward is a serious position of need. And that falls under whether you bring back, you decide to bring back James Ennis, um, use the mid-level exception on somebody else, whatever it may be. Uh, because as far as guys under contract for next year, if Reggie Bullock is not um, is not able to be your starting small forward and more or less your full-time small forward, um, Let's see, just a second. I want to make sure that I've got this. I believe the only other guy under contract for next year who's really a small forward is Stanley Johnson. That's it. Yeah, that would be... <laughs> that's it. He's the only other guy. Like, you can play two-guard lineups with Kennard and Galloway. So they did that some last year where Kennard was technically playing small forward. Um, but, you know, Stanley Johnson would be it. So if you think Reggie Bullock can be that guy then that's good and I'd be I'd be okay with giving that a try but that's still that's a decision that they'll have to make and that will be very important because if they decide to roll with that and it ends up being that he's not able to do it that would be potentially disastrous so it's going to be important for them to know and then tied into that is do you believe in Stanley Johnson because um there are certainly teams that would be able to bite that would be willing to bite on him um, you wouldn't get a big return for him, but he's probably the Pistons' 
most realistic trade piece at this point in terms of a guy who could get some return for them and also is not necessarily vital to their future success. So, um, for instance, Richie Bullock is probably their best trade chip this next season in that he's a very good player. He's got a skill set that any team would take, and he's on a tiny contract for just this next year, so it would be very easy to move him. But the Pistons kind of need him to be on the Pistons next year. All right, Red, Luke Kennard is a really good trade asset for the Pistons, but they kind of need him to be on the team next year. Um, Stanley Johnson is their best combination of would have at least some value to some teams that would be willing to give something for him, while at the same time he's not necessarily super pivotal to what the Pistons are would need next year. And so they have to decide because if they if they decide Stanley Johnson's never going to learn to shoot we need someone else, then you can trade him and you can get some return for him that would not be terrible, especially if you tried to do it around the draft, I think. You could maybe move into the first round of the draft, potentially not early, but mid to late first round, depending on how much the other team values him, or you could maybe get back a veteran who could help your team this year. Um, but that's a decision you have to make, because tied into that is, do you bring back James Ennis or not? And I would be okay with bringing... I would not hate the idea. I, I like Stanley Johnson a lot. I would prefer to keep him. But if you're going to move on from him, I would not hate the idea of trading him for, you know, whether for a late first-round pick or something like that or some other young guy and then bringing back James Ennis on the mid-level exception or something close to it. Um, I actually don't think that they'll be able to quite offer him the full mid-level exception. I think they'll be able to get close. I think they'll be able to offer him close to $8 million a year. I'd have to double-check the math on that. But regardless, um, I would not hate the idea of James Ennis going as, into next year as a starting small forward. But you have to decide on what you, how much you believe in Stanley Johnson or not with that. Um, and so then to finish off, yeah, we're, we're right at 30 minutes, so we'll finish off with this last thought, um, is with the point guards. There's a couple of guys who I've seen some people bring up as potential replacements. Um, they are Dennis Schroeder. And Terry Rozier. So, with Schroeder, I would be hesitant with either of these guys. Um, with Schroeder, you could do worse. We know for a fact that he is a fairly competent starting point guard at the very least. Um, a couple of years ago with the Hawks, he was a, he had a really good year on a team that won 43 games and was the fifth seed in the East, which obviously isn't great, but it's a team that won. Um, he regressed in a lot of areas this past year, but that's potentially forgivable because of the fact that the Hawks were terrible, and he was, like, very regularly the only competent player on the floor. Um, but a couple years ago, he, on a team that won a lot of games, he was a starter. He played 31.5 minutes per game, scored 18 points, dished 6.3 assists, shot 45% from the field, 34% from three. Those percentages work out to a 53.3 true shooting percentage, which is pretty good. Um, but the thing that's worrisome about him is that, first off, He's not a good shooter. Um, he went, he shot 34% a couple of years ago. This past year he shot 29%. He's a career 32% three-point shooter. Um, so the Pistons' potential spacing issues that they are going to be facing already would get even worse. Um, and also just in general, he has a lot of the same issues and potential problems that Reggie Jackson has. He has a tendency to go too much, to play hero ball too much. Um, he turns the ball over more often than you'd like him to. Um, he's not always totally engaged on defense, but he also doesn't have the positional versatility as Reggie Jackson does because he's smaller than Reggie Jackson by quite a bit. Um, 
the main thing that Schroeder brings is, first off, he's very explosive. Um, just in terms of getting to the bucket and getting buckets. Dennis Schroeder is very good at that. That is his best skill. And then on top of that is that he's been fairly durable in his career. So um, the Pistons could do worse than him, but I feel like it'd be a marginal upgrade and potentially a downgrade. And the Pistons would have to give up assets for that because obviously the Hawks don't want Reggie Jackson. So whether that's you have to find a third team to take Reggie Jackson, at which point, for what it's worth, if a team wants Reggie Jackson, why would they not just get Dennis Schroeder? But... You'd either have to find a third team to take Reggie Jackson, or you'd have to give up additional assets to what you would already be giving up to get the Hawks to take on Reggie Jackson. Um, so I just, you know, in a vacuum, I would probably swap Reggie Jackson for Dennis Schroeder, if you could do that, just straight up swap, um, just purely because Schroeder doesn't have the injury history. But that's maybe, that's at best, that's a fairly minor upgrade, and potentially even a downgrade. And in real life, you're obviously not doing a straight swap, so I'd be very hesitant for that. With Terry Rozier, first off, the Celtics don't have a particular need to trade him. Um, he's under contract for one more year, I think, on his rookie contract. Yeah, he's on his rookie contract for one more year yet. So um, unless he gets particularly unhappy, they don't really have any reason to get rid of him. But the bigger thing also is that Look, Terry Rozier is not bad, but he's not. He's played very, very well in the playoffs for them. Um, here, let me bring up his playoffs per game this year. And it is really good. 17 points, 5.8 assists, not a lot of turnovers, shooting 42% from the field, shooting 36% from three. That's a true shooting percentage of 55.9%, which is very, very good. But... A larger sample size over the course of the entire season, he shot 39% from the field, 38% from three, which is good for a true shooting percentage of 52%, which is not that remarkable. Um, that's actually kind of mediocre. Um, he still does have a good assist-to-turnover ratio, 2.9 assists to just one, one turnover. That's a really good ratio, which held up in the playoffs. Um, he's not a bad defender. He does compete defensively. And then also, though, this season as a starter, so even if you want to say, well, as a starter, he's been so much better. As a starter this year, 33 minutes per game, got 15.6 points, 5.1 assists, shooting 38% from the field, 38% from three. True shooting percentage of 50.3%. That's not... I mean, once again, you could do worse than him. He's young. He doesn't turn the ball over very much. He can really shoot, which would help the Pistons. Um, but I just, some people are thinking, and there's just a big part of it is just because he's, he's playing in Boston. So there's a lot of Boston fans. So there's lots of homers. So they're overvaluing him, but I'd be hesitant of looking at his playoff numbers from this year and all the people going, Oh my gosh, he's been really good in the playoffs. So we're going, so he's, he, he that's the player he is when there's a larger sample size that suggests that. He's not that good. That he's just a pretty good player who can be a starter or be a backup. Um, and the thing that makes that extra worrying potentially to whether it's the Pistons or anyone else giving up significant assets to get him is that um, is that he's playing for a coach that has a pretty strong history of getting by far more out of players than other places do, particularly guards. 
Um, remember Jordan Crawford when he had revived his career with Boston, got traded away, and promptly his career went back in the tubes. Um, and then the other thing that would make Rozier difficult, of course, is that um, the Celtics, not only would they have no desire to take on Reggie Jackson, they literally they couldn't do it. Um, it's like with the Hawks, if you really wanted to get Dennis Schroeder, you could throw in enough assets, whatever it would be. Um, now, it'd probably be more than I'd be willing to give up. But if you really decided Dennis Schroeder is our guy, we think he's going to be awesome, we're going to get him, you could convince the Hawks to take Reggie Jackson if you gave them enough assets. You could not do that with the Celtics. So, I just, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a big believer in Terry Rozier. He's good. He's not bad. He's not bad. I just, I'm not sure how I feel about him being my starting point guard full-time. So, yeah, um, that's all for today. We're at 36 minutes. That's a pretty good time. Um, hopefully the sound quality is improved with my fancy new mic. I hope so. And um, you guys all stay beautiful. Have a blessed day, and go Pistons.